3. Let them appear for a quick, earthless moment as ghosts, separate, dissimilar, and complete. They are even now moving as before death on their own ground. Is time's cold scroll recoiling on itself until the dead years speak, or is it in the throb of now that the spectres wake and wander through the walls? There was a library, and it is ashes. Let its long length assemble. Then its stone walls, its paper walls are thicker, armoured with learning, with philosophy, with poetry that drifts or dances clamped, though it is in midnight. Shielded with flax and calfskin and a cold weight of ink, there broods the ghost of Sepulchrave, the melancholy earl, seventy-sixth lord of half-light. It is five years ago. Witless of how his death by owls approaches, he mourns through each languid gesture, each fine-boned feature, as though his body were glass, and at its centre his inverted heart like a pendant tear. His every breath a kind of ebb that leaves him further from himself. He floats rather than steers to the island of the mad, beyond all trade routes, in a doldrum sea, its high crags burning. Of how he died, Titus has no idea, for as yet he has not so much as seen, let alone spoken to the long man of the woods, Flay, who was his father's servant and the only witness of Sepulchrave's death, when, climbing, demented, into the Tower of Flints, the Earl gave himself up to the hunger of the owls. Flay, the cadaverous and taciturn, his knee-joints reporting his progress at every spider-like step, he alone among these marshalled ghosts is still alive, though banished from the castle. But so inextricably has Flay been woven into the skein of the castle's central life, that if ever a man was destined to fill in the gap of his own absence with his own ghost, it is he. For excommunication is a kind of death, and it is a different man who moves in the woods from the Earl's first servant of seven years ago. Simultaneously, then, as ragged and bearded, he lays his rabbit snares in a gully of ferns, his ghost is sitting in the high corridor, beardless and long ago, outside his master's door. How can he know that it will not be long before he adds, by his own hand, a name to the role of the murdered? All that he knows is that his life is in immediate peril, that he is crying with every nerve in his long, tense, awkward body for an end to this insufferable rivalry, hatred, and apprehension. And he knows that this cannot be unless either he or the gross and pendulous horror in question be destroyed. And so it happened. The pendulous horror, the chef of Gormengast, floating like a moon-bathed sea-cow, a long sword bristling like a mast from his huge breast, had been struck down but an hour before the death of the Earl. And here he comes again, in a province he has made peculiarly his own, in soft and ruthless ways. Of all ponderous volumes, surely the most illusory, if there's no weight or substance in a ghost, is Abiathar Swelter, 
who wades in a slug-like illness of fat through the humid ground mists of the great kitchen. From hazy progs and flesh-pots half afloat, from bowls as big as baths, there rises and drifts like a miasmic tide the all but palpable odour of the day's belly timber. Sailing, his canvas stretched and spread through the hot mists, the ghost of Swelter is still further rarefied by the veiling fumes. He has become the ghost of a ghost, only his swede-like head retaining the solidity of nature. The arrogance of this fat head exudes itself like an evil sweat. Vicious and vain as it is, the enormous ghost retreats a step to make way for the phantom sourdust on a tour of inspection. Master of Ritual.